Today, we're talking to David Primer, founder at Cerebral Selling, about why you should sell the way you buy. Sell the way you buy. Kind of an interesting concept when you really, really think about what that means. Because I think in most cases, the way that we sell, and especially the way that we prospect, because we're selling to someone or prospecting to someone whose job we've never done, it makes it very hard to sell to them the way that we would buy that because we may not have a lot of experience buying that. And that's one way to think about it. That's that's the way that I would naturally think about it is, well, that's kind of hard. That sounds really good in theory, but you know, that's kind of hard if I haven't done the job of the person I'm selling to. And the reason why I'm super excited to talk to David Primer today over at Cerebral Selling is that he looks at it in a uh, looks at this topic in a much more simple, straightforward, um, empathetic, very science based way that is like so human. <laughs> and I know that's kind of a weird cliche that you hear these days, but it's a way that's just so authentic and genuine and really connects with the other person and makes them feel like they are a part of a conversation that really engages them in an emotional level uh, to really, you know, get them to open up, right, and be honest with you. And that's what discovery is all about. Uh, before we get to the interview, though, if you're listening to the podcast for the first time, my name is Jason Bay. I'm the host of Blissful Prospecting. And my goal in this podcast is to help you land more meetings with your ideal clients. So I love helping sales teams, sales reps who love landing big meetings, uh, with prospects, but hate it when people don't pay attention to their emails or when they don't feel confident making cold calls. So the interview with David today is going to be really good. You're in for a treat. Uh, what he's really going to dig into, which is a topic we have not really talked about on this show, is discovery. So part one of our conversation was actually on the virtual tour that we did together, which by the time you listen to this, the last one we're going to be doing with Morgan Ingram uh, today if you listen to this on the day it comes out. So make sure to check that out, tour.blissfulprospecting.com. Uh, but we're going to be talking all about discovery. And David's got all kinds of great experience. He used to be uh, VP of sales at Salesforce. So pretty big deal. And he's also got a really great book that just came out, Sell the Way You Buy. And that's what we're going to dig into. And before we get into the interview, I wanted to tell you about a tool I'm really excited about called Wingman. And I actually just started using it uh, earlier this week. So if you're listening to this on Thursday, I, I literally used it two days ago. And what I've been looking for is not only something that will record my sales calls, but something that will actually like give me coaching in real time. So one of the things that Wingman has really helped me do is identify a couple of things. Uh, one, it's got this uh, functionality called monologue alerts. So like real time in the middle of the sales call, it tells me if I've been talking for more than 60 seconds at a time and it pings me in a way that the prospect can't hear or that they can't see. I thought that was really cool. Uh, the other thing that it does is behavioral cues. So if there's something that I'm trying to break, a habit that I'm trying to break, a certain phrase, ums, as anything's like that that I'm saying, um, it can help me uh, overcome that as well and like really pop up and let me know when I'm saying things that I shouldn't be saying. And then the other thing that's super cool too is cue cards. So you can create certain uh, cue cards for when the prospect brings up the word price 
a little card pops up with talking points in the middle of the call so you can instantly either handle objections or answer the prospect's question. And it's going to be really relevant for the conversation that we're having with David today because we're going to talk all about discovery. He's going to share some really cool questions that you can ask. And one of the ways to reinforce that and make it a habit is to have a tool like Wingman to help you out. So make sure to check it out. If you're a sales manager, it's a really great tool to use with your team. And if you're a manager, it's a really great, uh, or excuse me, a rep, it's a really great tool that you can be using yourself. So check it out. It's at trywingman.com. It's the tool that I'm most excited about right now. And without further ado, let's get to the interview with David. So you're an interesting person to do research on because like when I go to the LinkedIn, you know, there's like the more experiences button at the bottom, you click and then a bunch of stuff pops up. Then you click again and a bunch of stuff <laughs> pops up. You click again. But I'm really curious with someone like you that has such a, a vast amount of sales experience. I always like to wonder, like, do you remember your first sale? Like, what do you remember about it? Well, I actually, I started my career as a sales engineer. So uh-huh. for all of, you know, all the solutions engineers and consultants out there, uh, you like, that was a great foray for me because I was a research scientist before I was doing coding. And so mm-hmm. kind of going into that realm where I was doing presentations, demos, custom coding was a good fit. So, um, you know, we were an enterprise workforce management software company. That's what I worked for. So I worked there, I was there for eight years and, and I was employee number 20, but we grew it to 700 employees and a hundred million dollar business. And we wow. IPO'd and we got acquired. So the whole, that was like my first lead off, you know, my first lead off job. Like, oh, this is great. Like, maybe that's why I got so entrenched into sales. I'm like, oh, are they all going to be like this? But, uh, but no, so I, I do absolutely remember kind of the first, like the first deals that we won. And I, and of course these were like big, big multi-million dollar deals. And I was kind of part of the team, but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it was very satisfying. Some of these sales cycles lasted 18 months, two years. Like they were, they were pretty big. But yes, I remember, I remember all of the experiences. It's mostly the experiences staying in the courtyard Marriott in some like random, you know, (laughs) small town preparing for like the two day demo. But yeah, lots of awesome memories for sure. So are you the type like still, do you still get a little, like when you make a sale, a little, you know, spark, do you jump up and down a little bit? Like, do you still get excited? (laughs) I, you know, yes, it's, but it's, but it's less about, Oh my gosh, I can't believe that they bought it. You know, like it's yeah. you're sitting there. You know, it's it's not that. It's like, no, like it means like the it's it's the mission is there, the value is there, people hmm. see it, people believe what I believe, and they see what I see. And as someone who's trying to change the world of sales for the better, that's very gratifying. So I, you know, and honestly, whether it's a client signing on with me to do some training or someone buying my book and saying, Hey, look, we really love the book, like. I actually get like a, a similar amount of joy out of that for sure. No, that's cool. Uh, I'm was excited for this conversation and we kind of talked about this offline, but this is kind of like a part two to the, uh, when you came on the virtual tour and talked about how to supercharge your prospecting and we talked about empathy and science and there's a bunch of cool stuff. So make sure to check that out. Um, if you haven't, we'll link to it in the show notes. But if we kind of look at the discovery part of the equation, before we dig into that, how did you get into more of like the science and psychology and behavioral kind of stuff with sales? Because a lot of people, you know, they teach a lot of tactics and strategies, right? But there isn't really any science or anything else like that behind it. It's just like, I've done this for a long time. Here's what I've always taught people. This is how to do it. How did you get into that, that part of sales? Yeah, I call that I call this the Cobra Kai tactic. If you, if, if you remember, <laughs> yeah. I'm the Karate Kid. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm watching the new Karate Kid, the TV show. Actually, that's right. Good. 
Yeah. Well, look, there's a karate kid for every generation, but no, I mean, yep. that's the whole thing in sales. Like there's no school. There's no, mm-hmm. there's, there, you know, no one, te- no one teaches this at university or college. Very, very few in fact. And so you just learn from your sensei and whoever your sensei is like, that's the person that you grow up to be. Um, and so for me, because I was a research scientist before I got into sales and I was, a, I was, a, I, I did a graduate work in chemical engineering. So I was, it was not, uh, not in psychology or anything like that. But the common thread, I feel like for me as a person throughout my whole life, as a kid, I love like radio control cars. I love taking apart my mother's vacuum cleaner, trying to figure out how it worked. I liked, I found a lot of um, satisfaction from knowing things to first principles, like knowing why something happened. Yeah. I was, you know, rather than here's what I did, here's what you should do. And that's actually in the world of sales, how we, how we got into this mess, how we got into trouble over the years, right? And so just the natural curiosity of trying to understand things from first principles, even today as a grown-up, like as a grown-up, 45, (laughs) I love, I love, you know, rewiring, you know, circuitry in my house. I love installing mechanical equipment. I just love that. So Mm -hmm. for me, when I got into sales, I was, which I didn't know was a job you could do, by the way, as like a professional salesperson, I started to get very curious. And as I saw how people bought and how like sales reps executed, I said, well, look, when they, they explained it like this, they got it. When they explained it like that, the customer hated it and didn't like them. And, and when we tried to put pressure on them at the end of the month to close the deal, like this was the reaction. But then when we did, so I, I started just kind of picking up these trends and patterns and, and kind of self-taught the sales psychology piece, trying to get back to first principles of like, okay, why do people buy things and, and emotional intelligence and all that kind of stuff. So that's how I got into it. Honestly, just kind of natural curiosity, which, um, you know, if anyone's looking for career advice, just look at the stuff that you you've been doing for years off to the side in your own kind of personal life and execution. Like that should give you a good clue as to what, <laughs> what you'd be well cut out for. And that's um, that was what it was for me. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Cause one thing I've noticed that you do a really good job of too, is you take a lot of stuff that's not like, there isn't really, in my opinion, outside of like, you got a book on it. Todd Capone's got, there isn't really a lot of like sales psychology. It's mostly like, I noticed you really good at taking stuff that's like kind of adapted from just any type of consumer, you know, psychology or marketing principles or copywriting. Is it all kind of boiled down to the, the fact that, Hey, I'm kind of like doing true empathy. I'm, I'm, and think about what it's like sitting in the other person's shoes or what it's like when I'm sitting in the buyer's shoes and thinking about like, what do I respond to? What do I like? What do I don't like? Like, is it all kind of, kind of boiled down to those kind of things and um, across different applications? Yeah. You know what? Sales psychology is actually a misnomer. I actually believe mm-hmm. it's, it's buyer psychology. Someone uh, was asking me this morning, they said, so sell the way you buy. Is that all about, you know, kind of analyzing how we buy and changing how we buy? And I was like, no, 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 no. How we buy, that ain't changing. Like people are people. And I said, you know, it doesn't matter if you're buying expensive B2B software, or you're ordering lunch, you know, at the food court, or you're choosing to where you go on vacation, or the partner you're going to marry, all of those decisions happen in almost exactly the same way, like on an emotional level. And so, you know, we're not going to change that. We're not going to change how we buy, but we can change how we sell by attuning ourselves to how people buy. And so it's really looking at the, the pathways and mechanisms by which we make purchasing decisions, but really yeah. dis- decisions in general, right? It's not, it yeah. has, it, then that's why there's so much, you know, a correlation to what did you order for lunch to like, okay, what's the CRM software you're going to buy? Like it's so, so um, related. Yeah. 
Now let's, so let's dig into some of the discovery stuff. Like what, where do you see, I think a good place to start is where do you see a lot of uh, salespeople sort of messing up in terms of like their mentality around discovery and like what they think about, like what they're going to accomplish in that first call when they get on a phone with a prospect or a zoom call these days. Yeah. Well, the way I kind of think about it, I think about it in two, two chunks. The first part is when you get into a discovery call, what do you want to know? And then the second part is, how are you going to get them to tell you? Okay. So, so that, that's really what discovery is. And it's funny to think we actually spend a lot of time focused on how are we going to get them to tell us and yeah. less on like, what do we want to know? And kind of where this kind of, uh, you know, met up for me. And I saw this at all my startups and, and you know, I, I worked five, five years at Salesforce. I used to run small business sales for the Eastern U.S. I would see this consistently. You have reps that get on a call with a customer. They're lovely people. Customers are lovely people. We have a lovely conversation. We get off the call. We took lots of notes, right? And they go back to their CRM and they try to forecast this deal and they get asked questions by their manager. Hey, you know, when's this going to close? What's the value? You know, mm-hmm. what's the decision-making signing process? And they look down at their notes and they're like, shit, I got none of that. I got none of it. Like, how did I talk to, had this lovely conversation with this person come out with nothing that was helpful. And oftentimes it's because the A, they didn't know what they wanted to know going in. They didn't have a prioritized list of what those things were. They didn't know how they were going to get at it. And then when they actually went in, they riffed the call too much. And all of the good things that they may have had on their list, they kind of stuck to the end and they ran out of time. So that's the first things first is like, what do you want to know? Right. And so I, an extra helpful exercise, if you're listening to this is what I, what I you know, tell my clients as well, as I say, write down on a piece of paper, when you get out of that call, I call it my hashtag fail list. So the way it works is like this. If we don't leave the call, complete this sentence. If we don't leave that discovery call with details about X, then the discovery call was a failure. So I want you to write down, what are all those things that you want? Now here, look, I'll burst the bubble for you. People put, you know, Budget, needs, timing, authority, signing process, like all these kinds of things, problem we're yeah. trying to solve. I'm like, great. So you have this list. And I actually talk about this in my book as well. And so they come out with this list and I said, great, you're not going to get all that on the, on the first call. Okay. You're just not, you're not going to have enough time. So I want you to pick like, what's the most important thing? If you can only have one thing on that list on the discovery call, what do you want to leave with? And that's actually, a, you know, usually when I ask open-ended questions like that, you know, there's... I'm like, hey, look, there's no right or wrong answer. It's whatever it is for you. Although for that question, I do have a point of view on, on what you yeah. should be come, coming out with. But that's the exercise that I ask people to do so they know what they want to get. Now, once they have that prioritized list, the question is, okay, how are you going to get to number one, number two, number three? Even if you don't get all the way through, what, what's the tactic? What's the approach? So just starting out with what do you want to know is super critical. Well, dude, I got to know. What, what's your opinion on the on the one thing? <laughs> <laughs> So I'll tell you. So the one thing I actually, I wrote this article, um, uh, it's on my website, but a lot of the content on my website, I would say not a lot, about a third of the content that you might find on my website, uh, I wrote back uh, at Salesforce, like back, you know, you know, let's say three, four years ago when I was, you know, on the Salesforce seeing what was going on. And, um, and I wrote this article, it said, you know, the most important, it said the most powerful question in sales and three ways to use it. And the most powerful question in sales, as I kind of, uh, as I kind of wrote it was, What's the problem that we're looking to solve? What, what's yeah. the problem? And I feel like in the discovery, that's the most important thing to get out of it. Because here's the thing, like you want budget, timing, all that kind of, if you don't have a problem that I can solve, it doesn't matter if yeah. it's free or not, or if it costs a million dollars, right? So I need to know the problem you're looking to solve and that's going to inform everything else. The timing, like 
How big a problem is this? When does it need to be solved by? Like, what have you done already? You know, like, but starting out with what's the problem we're looking to solve, that's because you can use that throughout the entire sales cycle to inform your, 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 your discovery, mm-hmm. your forecasting, everything. So with the, I was going to say problem, you know, as well, because I'm like, that's the, I can't, I become very pesky following up through the sales process if I can't allude back to a problem, because then it's just all about what I want, you know, from that person. Are you really bullish on the problem, like no problem, no sale, that kind of thing? Or do you feel like people buy stuff without having a strong problem? Like, and maybe it's a mix of the two. Like, what, what are your thoughts on that? So uh, when I say problem, it just means like, what's your, what's your motivation? More specifically, um, we talked about this idea of value and ROI and how value and ROI are not yep. the same thing, right? So value, so ROI, return on investment is a discretionary, sorry, it's, a, it's a, an objective financial statistic of an expected rate of return, right? Value is a discretionary subjective feeling. And so the question is, when I go out and buy something, Okay. I can go, I'm going to buy things because of value and feelings. And maybe for example, I'm an entrepreneur and in my business, I actually spent a lot of wasted time doing things I shouldn't be doing. And so if you come to me and you say, David, I work with entrepreneurs all the time who love what they do, but hate the fact that they waste their time doing stuff they shouldn't be doing in their jobs. Now I'm going to be listening to you and, and, and I'm focused on a, a loss, right? Lot, this idea of loss aversion, Daniel Kahneman, you know, thinking fast and slow, I'm a big fan. Mm-hmm. There's a pain, right? But now I go into the car dealership, okay? And I'm a middle-aged guy and I've, I've been driving minivans for too long, Jason. And I'm like, you know what? This is, dad, daddy's going to get daddy's little car now, right? And I, I'm going to get the car for me. And I go into the car dealership and there's really no business case, right? For me to, yeah. to get that car. And there's really no pain I'm experiencing other than I really want to have some excitement in the form of a nice car in my life. And that's the problem I'm looking to solve, right? The problem doesn't have to be, ideally it's something that there's, there's a loss, there's a pain that's clear and present, but even like, okay, I'm going to get like my nice car now. This is a fictitious story, but like, I'm going to get my nice car now. The problem I'm looking to solve is, is, is more existential. Like I feel like maybe I'm losing out on life of it because I don't have this excitement. So anyways, take home message. The problem oftentimes is some kind of loss. It can be some aspirational thing you want to get to, but it's always a feeling. Let's dig into that because there's, I mean, there's different schools of thought. Like I like uh, Keenan gap selling, for example, but what Keenan's like very bullish on is like the ROI factor, like the very logical, you know, what is there to lose here? And you're kind of going like this. Um, And I've always thought that that, I mean, there's, I love his stuff. There's definitely some good stuff there. I've always thought like when I do that, where the conversation tends to go is like these like number driven stuff. And most of the time people don't know the numbers anyways, and they're kind of pulling numbers out of their ass to try to guess. So it becomes this really useless information I've noticed, but how do you quantify like the problem? Like if that's the big thing that you want to get away with, like what, what does like the good version of that look and sound like versus like the bad version of that? Look, I, so first of all, I'm a fan of Keenan. I love the concept of gap because he's basically yep. talking about the same thing. Yep. Uh, but but this is kind of the way it works, right? If I show you that there is a, a financial um, uh, case to be made for moving to my product, what impact does that have? What it does is it makes you feel good. It yeah. makes you feel good. And for all of you who bought software technology out there, 
we put together business cases. I talk about this story in the book, how we were trying to sell our, our third, my third startup. We we're trying to sell a product to a very kind of, you know, old school CEO. And he's like, there's gotta be a business case. <laughs> and so, and so we put together a business case with like, you know, with a spreadsheet and all that kind of stuff. And here's the thing with business cases. The only thing that matters about a business case is does the other person believe that this is going to happen? Because often, and I'm just, I'm talking to all of us sellers out here now, have you ever put together a business case and you looked at the numbers, you're like, that's too aggressive. Like that, that payback is way too fast. The customer will never believe that they will save yeah. that much money, right? And then we start getting into like, hey, look, Jason, you, look, if you sign up with Blissful Prospecting, if we just get you like one more deal or two more deals every month, every, you know, it's going to pay for itself, right? So now you have to, everyone's used that just one more, just one more of this, just one more of that. So now it all comes back to like, do you believe that that's going to happen? And the belief is not only in the numbers, but the product, the, the capability of the organization, the capability of my organization to leverage that. Like we could implement Salesforce and it could be the, mo- the, bit, the best thing that we've ever done, or it could be the worst thing we've ever done, irrespective of the quality of the product. Right. So all of these like existential values start kind of swirling around and all that it comes down to is like, do I believe if I invest in the personal trainer, do I believe I'm going to come out with like the big biceps and the, and the six pack abs or, or do I not? Right. And oftentimes we invest in beliefs, in hopes, in aspirations. We buy things because our friends buy things, even statements. Have you ever heard the statement, Jason? No one ever got fired for buying. Yeah. What? Xerox. It's a Fortune 100 company usually. Right? What the hell does that mean? Does that mean that Xerox has the best product? Does IBM have the best product? Like, no. It means that the person who's saying no one ever got fired for buying values safety, security, going with a market leader, which may not be the best solution for them, but what does it do? It makes them feel good. I'm not going to get fired if I go with this safe, you know, big gorilla option in my, in my industry. So again, it all comes back down to feelings and a person who says no one ever got fired for buying IBM, even if IBM is more expensive, will find a way to cost justify the return that they're spending on that emotional value. Wow. This is, so essentially like when we're doing discovery, then what we have to think about is like, are you not like asking about numbers at all? Is it more about like, where are you trying to head right now? And like, why is that important to you? Is it really focusing more on the why and the, the emotional parts of like, why, if they present some numbers, for example, like, Hey, we're, we need to grow 20%, you know, this quarter, or like that type of thing. Is it really focusing more on like, well, why is that important? And what are you going to get from that? Is that where the conversation needs to be focused more so than on like the actual number itself? And like, you know, finding out where they're heading trajectory wise versus where it is. Like, I don't know if my question's making sense, but yeah, no. So first of all, I want to say I'm not anti numbers, like numbers Mm -hmm. are good, but keep in mind, like if this is, if this sphere represents value, then ROI is like a smaller, smaller sphere within, within that, you know, it's like a subset, like ROI again, makes you feel good. But let's say for example, so, so having a good return, makes total sense. But people buy things all the time. Like what's the, what was the ROI of, uh, you know, the iPhone? Why didn't, why don't you get like a Samsung versus the iPhone? Or like, where did you go on your last vacation? Why did you go there versus going someplace else? Right? Like you'd be hard pressed to justify the ROI, but you feel very, very secure mentally in the decision that you made. 
But even things like, let's say, for example, I'm selling IT security software and I'm mm -hmm. selling it to you, the customer. The real question is, what is it? What's the feeling? Like, what is it that you value? And maybe everything in your business is great and you're very, you're looking at my solution from a very uh, dollars and cents perspective. You know, we're going to spend money on this and it's going to give us the return there. It's going to save us all of our time. We're not going to have to do this stuff manually. Or maybe you just had a data breach in your company. And now all of a sudden you're like, shit, I need security now. Think about this. We're recording this kind of, you know, we're in the pandemic phase. A year ago when people were buying you know, gloves and masks and hospitals, I'm sure they were negotiating pretty hard on price and these kinds of things. Now you find yourself in the middle of the pandemic. I wonder how hard these same people are negotiating to get the masks. They're not as concerned about the price. I just need them here yesterday because I got sick people coming in the door, right? So the, what we value, I had a data breach. I value speed and security versus, you know, a year ago, everything was going fine. Then I value just the money, right? So what we, the key is when you're doing discovery is you have to figure out what the other person values. And those values could be different based on the company. It could be different, right, based on the individual. And so you typically, when you're doing discovery, you want to go in with an open mind. But my advice to you would be to think about whatever it is you sell. Think about who your target buyer is, the persona. People often think about the persona. And mm -hmm. think about what does that person value? right? What does that person value? Because if you're trying to sell me a car and I'm a middle-aged guy, maybe I value safety, security because I got kids and I want them to be protected. Or maybe I feel repressed from driving minivans for many years and I just want something that's a little fun. And so you're going to try to sell me on that fun factor. you got to figure out what it is I value. Gotcha. So, so we focused on the no part of this, like figuring out like what we want to know. If we look at kind of the getting them to tell you part and maybe even kind of zoom in a little bit on like the discovery call itself. Do you suggest that people have some sort of uh, structure to a discovery call? Is there a certain way we should intro the call? Should we save room at the end for certain things? Like how do you, what, what do you suggest and what are your thoughts around structure? Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, time and energy spent on the upfront part of a discovery call, especially if you're doing outbound or you're doing prospecting yep. where the person was not expecting your call. Mm -hmm. I do like a little bit of a formula, not a script because the script can come off as scripted and then people get very immediately turned off by scripts. But I do like a little bit of a formula, especially when you're going like outbound yep. and then I'm okay to like free form the middle part of the call. Um, you know, with kind of taking the call in a direction that it should go in, keeping in mind how you get people to self-disclose and open up. And then I do like a slightly more structured end of the call to make sure that we're driving towards next steps and getting buy-in for those next steps in the right way. Super critical. Because if you don't get that buy-in at the end of your discovery call, the prospecting was like almost a waste. Like if someone says, okay, great, Jason, follow up, send me some information. Okay, well, that, okay, what the hell is that? Like that's, that deal ain't, ain't going anywhere, right? So yeah. um, I do like a little bit of structure at the beginning and end for sure. How do you suggest we open up a discovery call then? What, what do the first couple minutes sound like? So here, like the, the, the jury is out in terms of like, what is the best? I actually talk about it in the book. There's a lot of research in terms of like, what is the best opening line? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, people used to say, hey, Jason, do you have a few minutes to chat? And then, pe and then people were like, that sucks because Jason, if he says yes, which he doesn't want to do because yes is a very commitment word. Yeah. He doesn't want to do it because then I'm just going to, he's giving me consent to do whatever I want to him in these next few minutes. And so people switched it around to be like, 
oh, Jason, have I caught you at a bad time? And that was thought to be more effective because I'm going for the no. I'm going, like I have Chris Voss in yeah. my head, right? Like I'm going for the no. But then Gong comes out and they do this research and they find that the, the top performing, like six times more efficient in terms of getting that meeting booked, the opening line is, how have you been? Yeah. And so I actually dissect that in my book and I talk about why, how, why saying how you've been is so powerful. However, I also say in my book, I said, if you're reading this and you're thinking, there's no way in hell that would work on me, it's okay. Like there's no tactic that works 100% of the time. I personally, when I'm cold calling or like, which I, you know, I, I don't do as much anymore, admittedly, but you know, when I'm listening to my clients, you know, cold calling and, and the way I kind of approach mm-hmm. my phone conversations, I'm a big fan of the pattern interrupts. Yeah. Because here's the thing. When you start out a call with a customer, and I, and I do this actually, even though I don't do as much outbound prospecting, even when I get on a call with a customer now, mm-hmm. I'll start with these pattern interrupts and not, not intentionally anymore. I kind of, it's more subconscious, but what I, what I do is, you know, empathy. I know I'm probably interrupting you. I know getting a call from a salesperson that is unannounced is the least exciting part of your day. And so how can I be a little bit different, a little more human? And so I'll, you know, I'll say things like, you know, hey, for example, like, hey, you know, Jason, um, it's David calling from Cerebral Selling. I, I know you probably weren't expecting my call. I, I wanted to actually, the reason I'm calling was because of this, but I, I'm kind of curious, if you don't mind, before we start, blissful prospecting. Like, where does that blissful, like, wh- do people find prospecting blissful? Where did that come from, right? Yeah. And so now all of a sudden you're like, whoa, oh, okay. Like, and you're kind of reorienting yourself and it, it kind of breaks the pattern of, you wanting to just immediately get off the phone with me and say no. But I do like like the upfront contract after the pattern interrupt. Hey, look, I'm happy to tell you why I called and kind of what I was hoping to get. And if if at the end you're not feeling it, you know, we can part as friends. That's cool. So I'm giving you an out. I'm making you feel like it's okay to say no to me. Mm -hmm. So those are the things I like to see at the beginning of the call. The other thing I like to see, and we talked a a little bit about this on on the summer tour, is uh, bring a gift. Mm -hmm bring a gift. Like, what's the gift that you're bringing me, right? Like show me that you've done even a little bit of research about my business, about what I'm thinking. So for example, you might say like, Hey Jason, that's David calling from Cerebral Selling. Hey, look, I know you weren't expecting my call. I actually, I caught your summer tour with Todd Capone the other day and I loved it. And it kind of got me this idea to reach out and ask you a question about, you know, how you're doing your sales training. Do you, can I just ask you a quick question? And, and you can tell me if it makes sense to continue. Like, and now it's like, Oh, there's some context there. He put in some work. There's some research. And, and that, that little gift, that reciprocity makes me lean in and say, okay, give me your next, you know, 30 seconds before I decide oh. to hang up on you. Oh, got it. Love it, man. Uh, how does this, is there similarities in the patterns of like, uh, do you use pattern interrupts when you're opening a discovery call? You know, sometimes I will, sometimes I will. But a lot of it is just, you know, rapport building. I love doing, yeah. first of all, discovery on, on video. I think video is one of those things that, um, you know, scientifically shown, data mm-hmm. shown to increase your conversion rate on, on calls. I know certainly if you're doing outbound and on an a, an a unscheduled call, um, you know, FaceTiming someone out of the blue is kind of like a, a very, um, I would say, laudable, creative, risky tactic. Yeah. Um, but there's lots of things you can do with like products like Go Video from Vidyard where you can kind of, you know, pre-record videos, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I love um, videos as a pattern interrupt because we have so much more to talk about. I was actually, I, was, I had a discovery call with a client this morning and for whatever reason, the lighting in her room was like off and it was all red and we had never met or spoken before, right? And she turns on the red and I'm like, whoa, like what's, 
is there like a forest fire like happening there in your room? She's like, I know it's so crazy. And we had this like, <laughs> just like fun little interaction before yeah. we even got to talk and, and video, there's a, a tremendous power in there. So um, I like video for lots of scientific reasons, but yes, I'm a big fan of just pattern interrupt, like a normal person. Like if you met someone at a party and you're having like a nice mm-hmm. chit chat, the, the more formal and not saying not to make it formal, but the more formal and structured and, and um, salesy, it sounds the more resistant the other person is going to be, right? It should be a conversation between yeah. two nice human beings. How do you transition at the beginning of your discovery call from like this rapport, like we kind of did the chit chat to like, now we kind of start getting into this, this stuff. Do you formally like set an agenda or get buy-in around an agenda or what you're going to talk about or how the call will go or anything like that? You know, on my discovery calls, I, you know, I, and look, it doesn't, not that my way is the best way. Mm-hmm. I generally don't have like, okay, here's, here's the objective. We know how much time we have said, so, so, Hey, look, thank you, Jason, for making the time today. Um, you know, and I usually set this expectation before we get on the phone is I'll say something like, Hey, you know, thanks for making 30 minutes. I, you know, what I want to do, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your business, your needs, your challenges. I'm going to take, and I'm, I always make it a point of telling the client that I'm going to be taking lots of notes. So if it looks like I'm on the computer, like doing stuff, I want you to know that I'm paying attention and I'm going to kind of read some of the stuff back to you. And then look, then I'm happy to share a little bit more about me and what we do and what I do and, and all that stuff. And then at the end we can decide, you know, if, you know, if and when it makes uh, sense to, to kind of take next steps, how does that sound? So it doesn't have to be like overly formal, but I usually like to start off the conversation by letting the customer open up. Um, if it's inbound versus outbound, it might be a little different, right? Cause it's inbound. Hey, look, you came to me. So yep. where does it hurt? Tell me, Right. But mm-hmm. even when it's, um, you know, even when it's kind of like outbound and they've agreed to spend some time with me, I still allow them to speak. It's, um, it's also, it's one of those things where human beings love uh, self-disclosure. They love to tell people things about themselves. And, you know, while we're speaking, we're, we're not learning anything. So I always love to open it up and let, let the other person yeah. just have at it. That's very similar to how I open calls, actually. I love it. It's like you're, you're kind of doing the stuff you need to, but it doesn't sound super scripted. It doesn't sound like an... I like upfront contracts, but the, like the, the terminology that Sandler came up with around it is just so like formal you know, sounding. Um, so in terms of... Let's kind of skip here around the body of the call because we talked a lot about problems. So in the intro, I'm trying to build rapport. I'm letting... I love that you let them know. I, I'm going to start you doing that, letting them know you take notes because I take a ton of notes too. And, and it could totally look, especially if I'm looking at my other screen, like I'm not paying attention. They could hear keyboard clacking in the background, you know, that kind of thing. With the end, how much time do you save for you to talk about, okay, here, here are the problems that I heard, et cetera. Here's how I might be able to help. And you kind of wrap up the call and talk next steps. How much time do you try to give yourself for that? And like, what are you trying to accomplish at the end? Mm-hmm. The kind of the way I think about it, is when you're getting on a discovery call, like, okay, let, let's think about, I, the, the, the term I often use is actually a science term. It's called escape velocity. Mm-hmm. So escape velocity is a physics term. It's the amount of, of speed that an object needs to achieve to escape the gravitational pull of another body. So for example, a rocket being launched from the earth has to go up really, really fast in order to escape the gravitational pull. And I think it, otherwise it's just going to fall back down. So I think about that in terms of discovery as well. Over the course of the discovery call, my job is to increase the escape velocity of that opportunity, right? Either by the customer, you know, sharing and speaking a lot about their problems and, and opportunities, me sharing just enough, you know, worst case, if we can't get through everything, just enough to show them that I can help them 
solve the problem they're looking to solve and raise their level of intent, raise that escape velocity so that when we start talking about a next step, because look, I'll tell you the reality, um, oftentimes on, or I'd say not often, sometimes on my discovery calls, right? So I, you know, I, I train, do in-house training at, at, at companies. So sometimes on a discovery call, we won't have a chance to get into my pricing. Like mm-hmm. we just, we just never got to it, right? But so the question is like, do you have sufficient budget you know, for this kind of project, well, it's important for you to know how much money I charge. But again, that is irrelevant unless you have a problem that needs solving that you believe I can solve. Yep. So if I can at least get to the end of the call with, with that and we can set a next step or, hey, look, does, is, does it make sense to have a conversation where we talk about pricing and timeline and then you can still decide what you'd like to do. So I always think about like, you know, do I leave enough time at the end I always make sure that I leave enough time to get that to either for that customer to either decide that this is a conversation they want to continue or, you know, they don't. And so all of that kind of extraneous information that doesn't need to be part of that conversation, I'm okay leaving. Time out real quick. I hope you're enjoying the interview with David. One thing that tends to come up with the things he's talking about, one problem that, you know, I actually personally have is once you learn a new technique, what's really hard is remembering in the moment to actually implement that technique. So right now we're talking about next steps, right? And how to end a call. One of the things that uh, wingman can help you with, it's a tool that I started using. I talked about it at the beginning of the podcast is really making sure that the follow-up has really clear next steps. And that when I go to do that second call, when I'm preparing for it, I can quickly listen to the last part of where we talked about next steps without taking a bunch of time. And if you're a manager, one of the things that it can allow you to do is not only get a recording of a call, but it allows you to spot check and listen to dozens or hundreds of calls over the course of a week without having to pick through the specific parts of the call. So make sure to check it out. It'll be really helpful if you're trying to implement some of the stuff that David is talking about in this interview. So check it out, trywingman.com. Let's get back to the interview real quick. If we don't get around to it, but it does require you to be a little bit of like a time cop, you know, as you're kind of going through. Um, one of the tactics I'll also use, and not a tactic, this is just like being human, is I'll say, you know, hey, look, we do, I, do a, I do some discovery till you see that you, you have a problem that I can help you solve. And then I'll say something like, hey, look, you know, I'd love to do more discovery if we decide to go deeper into this, we'll have lots of opportunity. I'd love to learn a little bit more about these things that you said. But in order to make this decision, again, think of it like a newspaper article. You know, the headline is purpose is to get you to read the first sentence and the first sentence to get you to read the second and so mm-hmm. on. So as long as I've got you to read the next sentence and you're okay, and, and also I'm okay with you. Like I think you're worthy of the investment, you know, mutually, then then the call was a success, right? Like we're, we're taking that, that next step. So that's kind of the way I think about like iteratively moving to the end of the call. Have we built up that escape velocity? Got it. I love that. So you're kind of, again, it's not a lot of formality around this, but if we kind of have like the end in mind of where we're trying to go, I think that makes the body, you know, of the call kind of easier, that middle chunk. So we're focusing on the problems and you talked about the science of self-disclosure because this is like a big piece of it, right? Like we can ask all these like questions that we want, but if the person feels like we're qualifying them the entire time, probably not going to disclose a lot of things that uh, um, they would, they would if, they, you know, if they felt comfortable. So what is the science of self-disclosure? Disclosure? Like, what are you thinking about in terms of, you know, how do we get people to like really open up and actually like be open and, and honest, uh, somewhat yeah. honest, at least with us? Well, th- so there's two things. There's like, how do we get people to, to be open? And then that's one thing. And then honest. 
Uh, I talk a lot about this on my blog and I have videos in the book as well. The science of self-disclosure tells us that uh, the majority, I would say like a good chunk, I think about 40% of every, humans' everyday speech is, is uh, designed around sharing our opinions on things. Like people love to talk about what they think about things, right? And that goes true for discovery as well. People love to give their opinions. But the problem is that um, they don't love to give facts, as much or other people's opinions. And, and this, if you think about like self-disclosure in terms of those three categories, your opinions, someone else's opinions, facts. Um, the science tells us that we spend most of our time talking about our own opinions. But when we do discovery with our customers, sometimes we're asking fact-based questions yep. that are masquerading as opinion-based questions. So I might say, you know, so like, how long has this been going on? Why has that been going on for so long? What's your, you know, like, What's your budget? Who has to sign this? You know, what's your, uh, what's the, what's the timing for all this? Those are f- like facts. Like I'm interrogating you, right? Like yeah. I just, if there was a computer that could give me the answers and I would just ask the computer, right? <laughs> Versus the science of self-disclosure tells us that people love giving their opinions on things. So um, one of the tactics or a, a, a bunch of the tactics I teach around discovery is like, how can you ask questions that help people frame their responses in terms of like their opinion? their opinion. So, you know, even something as simple as appending a fact-based question with the phrase, why do you think, right? Why do you think this has been going on for so long? Like, oh, you know, yeah. why do you think this problem has existed? And, and sometimes, you know, you can get more sophisticated. A question that I love to ask personally um, is, is this, and feel free to steal it. Um, whatever, objective, whatever, let's say your business, your customers in, let's say they're a software company. Okay. You go to whoever it is and you say, Hey, look, answer this question for me. Okay. Fill in the blank. We could sell more software. If what's the, if right. And by definition, they're going to fill in, and that's an opinion based question. They can fill it mm-hmm. in with whatever they want. I'm like, you get to pick one thing. And most people have not been asked that kind of question before in that way. Yeah. It's not a clever, it's like, Oh, I'm like, it's a sneaky, clever question. It's a simple question, but it, it helps you get at the other person's opinion. I also like, if you're looking for another a tactic, and I have lots of videos and content on this as well, I love one to 10 questions. So like Jason, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being your sales reps are master prospectors. One being like, oh my gosh, they get hung up on all the time. Where would you say your team is today, right? And I'm asking you this one to 10 question. It's not leading because you could tell me, five, 10, 14, like whatever, you know, like, well, one to 10, right? But whatever answer you give is fascinating to me. You're an eight, great. You're a six, great. You're two, great. Like, why are you two? Why are you an eight? Like, tell me why, right? And so this idea of like the one to 10 helps people kind of gauge themselves. Now you gotta be careful. You don't wanna, you don't wanna uh, logic trap people. People hate logic traps. Mm-hmm. So can I, can I give you like a, an example? Yeah, Absolutely. So uh, I have someone who I was talking to and, and what she does, she has a solution that helps customers reduce churn for their, uh, for their, you know, for their software products. And she said, Oh, David, I thought of a great one to 10 question for my clients on a scale of one to 10. How important is uh, reducing churn to your business? 10 People being going to say 10 every time yeah. to that. <laughs> so she's like, what do you, she's like, what do you think? I'm like, that sounds like a logic trap to me because <laughs> if I say, you know, <laughs> it's like saying, do you love to save money when you shop? Like, okay. If I say, 
no, then I'm an idiot. And if I say yes, then I'm feeding into your trap, right? So, yeah. so n- no logic trap. So I said to her, like, I would tweak it a little bit. I would say, for example, on a scale of one to 10, um, how important uh, is reducing churn uh, to your business right now in terms of priorities? 10 being it's reducing churn is the number one thing we're focused on in our business. And, and one being like, look, we all want to reduce churn, but it's just not on our radar right now. Like that's, it's a slight tweak to the question, but mm. it's not leading. And again, it's still opinion-based. So those are just my, some sample tactics for, for asking opinion-based questions. It's the, it's the thing that people want to answer. Yeah. See, this is interesting because what you're making me think of is like how few times that a prospect gets asked a unique question during a sales call. I've never been asked a one to 10 question before. I've never been asked the, uh, I like pick the one thing question is, uh, is really cool. And that's what I've always kind of used to gauge. Like if I'm doing good discovery, the person's like, oh, that's a good question. I'm, and I was kind of thinking back just now as you're saying that, it always was a question where they went right like heavy into their opinions on what's going on or the politics of the situation and why they're trying to fight really hard for something and their boss doesn't see that, you know, the val- et cetera. So that's interesting. So, so essentially what we can have in our sort of back pocket is like two or three of these questions that are going to be unique and feel like, Oh, cool. I'm like, this is kind of fun for me to participate in as a prospect. But it seems the big part of this is if I can really get them to share what they think about something, which is the emotional part that you talked about before, like that's, those are going to be the things that I can do to really uh, create buy-in around this like problem, I guess, around like being open with this if they're talking about their opinion of what's going on versus like the facts around certain things and why they may or may not be happening. Yeah, look, you know, people love to give their opinions. People often don't stop to think about a lot of their problems. Like for example, mm-hmm. we were saying earlier for you, when you're talking to your clients and prospects and you, and you say like, you, people love prospecting, but they hate putting all of this personalization into a prospecting outreach. And then the person just doesn't respond. Like, don't you hate yeah. that? And, and maybe that's not something like, I totally agree, but I wasn't walking around before our conversation thinking that that was a problem I have. Right. Yeah. And so that actually leads into, we don't have time to get into all of this, but that leads into like a messaging, like a messaging tactic, which often our messaging tactics, how we describe what we do often, you know, permeates into our discovery conversations. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a great way of kind of doing both. If you can help define a problem in a way that your, your customer never thought of, like, imagine you go to, okay, you go into the doctor and you've got like this nondescript pain in your knee. And the doctor says, you're like, doc, I got this horrible pain. And the doctor says, okay, is it more of like a shooting pain? Is it more of like a dull pain? Is it a sharp pain? Is it more on the inside? Is it more near this bone? And now what they're doing is they're helping you like put like form to the problem. Yeah. And then when you're like, you know what? It is more of a shooting pain. And now all of a sudden you see the doctor as someone who can help you specifically with that pain. And as sellers, we do that all the time. If you're really good at helping the customer frame their pain just as, and, and leading off, you know, priming them just as you did with your example, then not only do they see you as like a, a valuable person to be speaking to, but they see you as the person that can solve their problem. You are uniquely positioned to solve their problem because you put form to the problem that they, they were not walking around conscious of. Got it. And at the end of the discovery, is that kind of what you're saving for the end too? Do you literally just kind of like, hey, here's what I heard. Um, it sounds like this 
is the problem that you're having. Here's why it's important. Here's why you think this is happening. Like, are you restating that stuff back to them? And then basically saying, well, this is like, when you talk about what you help, it's like, well, I can help you with this problem. It doesn't have to be like, we do this and here's my solution. Here's my trainings or whatever. It's like, well, that is a problem that we can help you fix. I'm a fan of the reminding. I don't, I wouldn't say you need to do it religiously, but the, Mm -hmm. the value of the reminding, and I have clients who actually will use that tactic before when customer says, how much does this cost? And before, and it's funny when you watch like an infomercial and, it, and yeah. you know, it's from some whiz bang product and you're like, you could probably wondering like how much this costs. Well, <laughs> in order to get all of the things that this machine could do, you'd have to spend $600 on machines, right? So what they're doing is they're reminding you right before they give you the price. And yeah. so that summary at the end of a discovery conversation can be helpful to give them intent and remind them like why they were looking to continue the conversation with you. Um, sometimes I just, I actually, um, you don't even need, so you can do that. Sometimes I'll just wrap it up by saying, Hey, look, so I really appreciate the time today. I've been taking lots of notes. Um, you know, it sounds like, you know, it might make sense to continue the conversation. What do you think? Do you, how, how has this conversation been for you? And, and people always like their ideas more than they like your ideas. So if you can get the customer to say, oh, yeah, I know I thought this was great. Or, yeah, I think it's worth, you know, having the conversation, you know, continuing the conversation, like that's mission accomplished, right? Like that's what you want, right? Now, after the conversation, I might send a follow-up note. Here's what we discussed. Here's kind of what the next steps are. There's also like different ways you can get people to commit to next steps because it's great. Like they might want to get off the phone with you, right? And they might just say, yeah, this is great. I'll call you next week. Then they won't ever call you, right? Mm -hmm. So ensuring that there's a certain amount of commitment there part of it is getting the other person to admit or agree that yes, this was valuable and we should absolutely take the next step. But it doesn't have to be overly like, here's the list of the 10 things we spoke about. Yeah. Gotcha. Dude, this has been great, man. This is action packed here. Um, (laughs) So where can people, cause you just came out with a book, like where can, where do you want people to go to connect with you? Find out more about your stuff. What do you want people to check out? Yeah. Okay. So there, there's two things. You can check out the website, uh, Cerebral Selling, all one word, CerebralSelling.com. I also have a YouTube channel of the same name. Uh, and you can, you, all that stuff is ungated, free. If you want to subscribe to get updates, you can absolutely do that. And the book is called Sell the Way You Buy. And you can get that on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, wherever you buy, wherever you buy books. But those would be the the two places to check out. And you can always hit me up on LinkedIn. I always like connecting with people on LinkedIn and share a bunch of stuff there as well. So by all means, feel free to do that. This is a fun one. I love getting to jam and talk about discovery. It's not something we've talked about a lot on this podcast because it's so focused on prospecting, but discovery is kind of that next step, right? And sometimes we get to do a tiny bit of it, you know, when we're cold calling. So I really enjoyed that conversation with David. One thing I'm curious is, you know, for you, when you think about how you're going to implement this stuff, because we got a lot of content, it's really now about like, how do we create change in our habits? And I'm wondering if you've ever run across a time where a prospect asks you a question that you don't know the answer to, and you kind of hit the panic button a little bit, right? You look for your script or the Google doc or the piece of paper that has like the talking points when someone asks about your price or your competitors and that sort of stuff. And the reason why I bring that up is that tool that I've been talking about wingman that I've started using it's helped me create some cue cards so that when prospects ask me certain questions and I feel put on the spot, I instantly have some notes that I can bring up and some talking points so that I can get right to focusing on the conversation I'm having versus trying to scramble and think about you know what I'm going to say. And if you're a manager, this is a way that you can really scale your coaching and not have to be there at the same time. So you can create these cue cards that notify reps of the right talking points so that you can handle the objection with confidence. And that's really what it's all about. So make sure to check it out. 
at trywingman.com. It's a super cool tool. I think you're really going to dig it. Trywingman.com. And thanks for tuning into the episode today. We'll talk to you later.